I want you to turn in the Bible with me. I almost don't want to move away from the worship there. I could just stay. I feel almost terrible to take you from worship into this. It seems so far removed, but by God's grace, it won't be. We'll, we will look at Christ as well. But amen. So wonderful to worship the Lord, praise the Lord, sing these old songs of Zion. I, I hate these effeminate, sentimental, no substance songs of this day and generation. I love songs that are prayers, that are worship, that are doctrinally sound, that literally stir your spirit as you sing them. You know, if there's truth in them, they will stir your heart as you sing about the blood and the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you here uh, to turn to Daniel in the Old Testament and Revelation in the New Testament. We're coming to part 10 on this series, Israel, what next? You might say it's taken you nine messages to get what next uh, uh, to come to that. But I wanna deal with something here, not as fully as I would like to or want to, I was going to start you with Revelation chapter 11. I was going to preach just from it. But at, the more I looked at this, I got pulled in so many different directions um, that I'm just not going to concentrate on Revelation 11. But we're, first of all, going to go to Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to start you with Daniel chapter 9. We will finish at Revelation chapter 11. These two books, Daniel and the Old Testament, Revelation and the New Testament, dovetail together. You can't understand one without the other any more than you can understand Christ in the Old Testament without Christ in the New Testament. They dovetail together. The Holy Spirit has inspired them. But let's read together and don't be ashamed or embarrassed any time to go to the front of your Bible. You've got an index of books, what order they come in. And that's always a handy reference when you're trying to find your place. But I want to take you to Daniel chapter 9 here tonight. And our message tonight, the two-state solution and Bible prophecy. The two-state solution and Bible prophecy. Reading from verse 19. And this is breaking in the middle of the chapter. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God. Notice this next sentence. For thy city and thy people are called by thy name. And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had not seen whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening ablation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, 
O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off but not for himself, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the ablation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now, Lord God, as we consider the city of Jerusalem your people, Israel, the Jew, in the Old Testament, in the prophecies of Scripture, as we consider these things in Daniel's day and in John's day and now in our day, O oh God, we consider the things that your Bible speaks about, the temple and the sanctuary, the city and the people, Lord God, of times and of seasons. And Father, we pray right now, give us an understanding mind and heart. Make us to understand. Lord God, we recognize it's not just by the skill of study, nor God, or of man's interpretation, but we need the Holy Spirit of God. We need your illumination that you'd give us an understanding mind. We know that we stand at the end of ages. And we ask, oh God, open up the Scripture of prophecy. Make them applicable in this hour. Lord God, show us what you have determined upon your holy city, Jerusalem, and upon your people. Lord God, the very people of Daniel, of Israel. Lord God, that were carried into captivity. Father, we pray, O oh God, Lord God, unto a great God, the God of Scripture, the God of Bible prophecy, who knows all things, who ordains his will and purpose to be outwork amidst the nations. And oh God, we have a great trust in you in this hour that you're bringing forth your plan and your purpose. Help us to be a praying people that prays according to the mind of the Spirit of God in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. 
The year was 1997. 1997, some of you weren't born. And I'd just been in a meeting late at night. A very gifted Bible teacher called Paul Tan from Singapore was teaching that night. And he began to expound Daniel and Revelation and talk about how the city of Jerusalem in the last days was going to be partitioned or divided or split as a mark of biblical prophecy. It was going to happen. And that Asian Singaporean Bible teacher opened this and expounded it. And I've never heard it taught on since that night. I walked out of the meeting early after he had finished teaching, but I had a two-hour drive at least to get home. And that night it had been snowing heavy. There was thick snow on the ground, and I had to drive through that snow. It took me far longer than I expected, but I got home, and I walked into my place where I lived, went upstairs, and I'd done something I'd never done in six years living in that place. I went over to a television and turned it on. I never, ever done that before. Never. It wasn't my tendency after coming in from a meeting ever to turn a television on. But that night I did. And as I went over, I turned the television on. And the channel it was on just came up. It was a news item. And there was a city and Jewish soldiers running through the city. It was a news item. And the presenter said, the city has just been partitioned. And I, my jaw literally almost hit the floor. I had just come from a Bible teaching concerned what's going to happen in the end days. Jerusalem will be partitioned. And half of it will go into the hands of the Gentiles of world government powers. And the other would be preserved for God's people, Israel. And for a few moments, as I looked at the screen, and it was Israeli soldiers running through this city, and them saying, the city's been partitioned. I was in shock. And then suddenly they announced, it's Hebron city. I later in my biblical studies realized before anything happens in Jerusalem, it always happens in Hebron. And Hebron is always symbolic of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Hebron is God's covenant city. And I sighed a sigh of relief, going, it's going to happen. But it didn't happen this night. Saints of God, I'm telling you, we're living on the edge of biblical prophetic history. We're in unusual days. And the danger is that most of the church doesn't realize the hour we're living in. It's not awake. Or it plays games with Bible prophecy. I want to tell you, 
we are right at the center of the making and of the fulfilling and the bringing about a Bible prophecy. I've got three points here for you tonight. And my first point is secular and historical. Then we'll get straight into scripture here. So bear with me for just a moment. My first point here tonight in this message that I've called the two-state solution and Bible prophecy. This is my first point. The history of a two-state solution. Why am I preaching on this? Because it's all that we're hearing on almost every news item is about the two-state solution. All over the world from China, Russia, America, Britain, Europe, the UN, the World Economic Forum, the EU. All these systems are talking about the two-state solution. Israel at the minute is saying, there's no way there's going to be a two-state solution. And America is starting to say, it's the only answer of peace that we have a two-state solution in Israel and in Jerusalem. It's the only hope. Let me for a moment here explain what is the two-state solution. Because our entire world, look at it, men are saying, is this going to break out into a worldwide war? Moving into Yemen, Iran, the world powers. Could this literally move and take us into a worldwide, worldwide war, the like of which we have never seen in our lifetime. If you think bloodshed has happened already in these few months, you ain't seen nothing yet when world powers begin to march. They are saying everything hinges on a two-state solution in Israel. What is a two-state solution? Let me explain. It was at the end of the 19th century, a Jewish man appeared on the scene of time called Theodore Herzl. He was born and raised in Europe, but he was a Jew. He was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in the Bible, didn't believe in prophecy, didn't believe in the stories of the Old Testament, but he was a Jew by birth. His parents were Jews, but an atheistic, God-denying, unbelieving, utterly skeptical Jew. He didn't believe in God. And yet this man began to have a deep urge to return to the land of Israel, the land of his father's. He actually began to envision that it was the only hope for his entire people. And yet he was an unbeliever. He did not believe the Bible or its prophecies. But a deep urge was in this man's heart. And he started to travel across Europe. And the intensity of this became greater. He went from country to country, from city to city, traveling year after year, warning Jews that they must flee the cities and nations of Europe and make the journey back to Israel again. He actually predicted and began to say, great tragedy is coming. Great bloodshed is coming. Many are going to die. Persecution is coming. You need to flee Europe 
and Russia and return again to Israel. We need a sovereign state to live in. This atheistic dead to God didn't believe his Bible, was literally being carried, I believe, by the hand of God. Do you know he had several very good friends? One of them was Lord Shaftesbury, a politician, a born-again evangelical in England, who actually spoke to him and said, this is what the Bible says, this is what the prophecies say, you, you need to return to Israel. He had another good friend from Germany who was an evangelical preacher who had influences with the princes in Germany. He also was absolutely consumed with the vision that God was going to restore the Jew to Israel again and reestablish Jerusalem as their capital. There were various Christians in around this man, Theodore Herzl, and he called for the first congress of Zionists and created political Zionism. And yet he was an atheist. But there was an urge, we've got to return to our ancient homeland once more. There were various Irish preachers caught up in this as well. There was a man called Sir Anderson who wrote books on Bible prophecy. And some of what I'm going to tell you here tonight, he preached on and wrote on. People like Queen Victoria read his books on Bible prophecy. And politicians, even the Prime Minister of Great Britain, would read his books on Bible prophecy. And there was another man, another Irishman called Henry Grattan Guinness, who used to preach out on this high street. And it was in the Limerick newspapers, he started a rad on the high street preaching, you must be born again. You need washed in the blood of Jesus. Jesus died once for all, for sinners. No further sacrifices needed, no mass, no confessional. Do you know that Henry Grattan Guinness of the famous Guinness family, and he was a teetotaler, never touched a drop of drink. And his family forwent all the wealth of Guinness in Ireland because they believed the Bible. Henry Grattan Guinness also wrote books talking about the time frame of Scripture, from Scripture. These men, these born-again preachers at the end of the 19th century, they were saying, Israel's going to return to the land. Jerusalem again is going to blossom and become its capital. God cares about the nation. These preachers were on fire and they worked out dates and times and seasons and began to preach this. It literally impacted Jews like Herzl who led the return of the Jewish people. Well, you know the history. Most didn't listen to Herzl. All the religious Jews didn't listen to him. He's an atheist saying, we've got to return, persecution's coming. The Orthodox religious Jewish rabbis and leaders said, oh no, God's got to do that. Not you, not man, not political systems. We're waiting on God to do it. We're not going to go back to the land until the Messiah comes. And because of that, many of them would die in Europe and in the Holocaust in Germany. You had birthed in the 20th century from its beginning. Herzl died in 1904. He would never see what was going to happen. 
Henry Grattan Guinness died in 1910, but he bought a small plot of land in Israel. And he says, this plot of land, I'm going to give it to some Jew who gets back to Israel again. I'm so convinced the land is going back to the Jews. I bought a portion of land and I'm keeping it for them when they return again. These men begin to die, but it began to happen from the beginning of the 20th century in a remarkable way. We know that the war was, the First World War was coming to an end in 1917. The Turkish Empire had ruled over Israel, Palestine, it was called Palestine then, and ruled over Jerusalem since 1516 all the way through to 1917. There was a general sitting in a room in Britain and he was sitting there reading a book by Henry Grattan Gittness on Bible prophecy. General Allenby of the British forces was there in the room with him having breakfast before he set sail for, it, for Palestine. And before he left breakfast, his friend said unto him, Allenby, Remember, you're going to be in Jerusalem by December time of 1917. Alambi said, that's utterly impossible. The Turkish Empire and its forces there. He says, mark my words, you will take Jerusalem by December time. He said, what makes you say that? He says, well, I'm just reading this book by Henry Grattan Guinness on Bible prophecy. And he says, Jerusalem will go back into the hand, will be delivered, begin to be delivered from 1917 and start to set out dates how God would restore it again to his ancient people. And he says, remember, Almby, when you get there, don't ride in on your horse. That's reserved for one man, and his name is Jesus Christ. You can go on YouTube, and if you bring up that, that Almby video of 1917, he gets to the city, I think it's a Jaffa gate. He gets off his horse with his generals and he literally walks his horse in. He doesn't ride in because he knows that it's Christ that's going to walk through. Saints of God, it was a remarkable era through the First World War and its ending. At the end of the First World War, there was a great gathering of nations in Paris. And they began to carve up the Middle East and other regions of the world. And say, you're going to have this and you're going to have this. It was the great empires, France, Britain, other nations, and America involved with that. And they were given regions to oversee. In 1920... The League of Nations, as it was called, it was the first world government institution. They wanted to become a one world government power in its first creation that would oversee all nations, but they failed. But it was the first attempt at world government worldwide. And the League of Nations actually gave power to Britain to administer Palestine, and that was going to happen from 1920 through to 1948 when Israel become a nation again. It's an extraordinary thing. But see, in that time period, 
1917, that very year that Allenby walked into Jerusalem, you had things happening politically back in Britain. You had something written up called the Balfour Declaration. Balfour, a politician, wrote a letter to Lord Rothschild concerning Israel being given back to the Jew one more time. And in fact, these political men, these men of money and of power, and if you knew anything, Lord Rothschild, that family was heavily involved with secret societies and world government and world power and wanting to see a one world new order come to bear. These were the men heavily involved with us. And they're writing letters. And again, another man, Lord Milner, who none of you even knew his name, yet he was one of the most important people of that hour. Lord Milner wrote up this Balfour Declaration, handed it to Balfour. Most people don't even know that. And this new recommendation was given that Britain was going to give the Jew his ancient homeland. It was written up in this document. They promised they were going to give the Zionists this bit of land. It was under their power, and they were going to give it. And so letters in November 1917 were going back and forth between these very powerful men saying Israel will be a nation again. Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of Britain, said that getting Jerusalem was a Christmas present for the British people and that this was a new hour and a new era. The British Zionist Federation in Britain was promised a national homeland for the Jewish people. But there's only one small problem. Britain also promised the Arabs the very same thing. The same politicians, the same nation promised the Arabs that they would be given one united Arab state in the Middle East. So you've got both Jew and Arab by the same power being promised secretly, we are going to give you your own one united state. So at the end of the Second World War, both groups, Arabs and Israelis, have been promised a homeland, a political state, unified. One is promised it'll be all Arab, unified under their power. The others are promised Palestine will belong to the Jew again. And then Britain didn't know what to do at the end of this First World War. So what did they do? They just continued ruling and reigning and trying to administer it. In 1939, Britain wrote up a white paper, a political paper, and this was their plan, a bi-national state. In other words, two states functioning together. And they said in this white paper, there would be a restriction of any Jew being allowed back into Israel or to Palestine. That was the beginning of the war. But for Britain's actions, many Jews would have escaped the Holocaust, but they weren't able to. During Britain's hour of power over this bit of land, the population of Jews from 1917 was 60,000. 
through to 1947, it grew tenfold to 600,000. Jews were going back to their ancient homeland again. But it's creating a problem. You've got now two peoples with two visions, with two desires of a homeland being promised by very powerful political people in our world. And then they headed into the Second World War. Everything was on pause and hold at that point. After the Second World War, the United Nations was created. This is the second attempt at world government or a new world order. First the League of Nations, now the United Nations. When the United Nations was formed at the end of the Second World War, they took a vote in 1947 concerning Palestine. What are we going to do with Palestine? Jews won it. Arabs won it. What are we going to do with it? And so they took a vote. The vote looked like it was going to go against Israel. And so the few Jews that were there began to talk, to labor, to persuade. When they took a vote about what are we going to do with the Middle East, there was a two-thirds majority vote in favor of the two-state solution. The greatest power in the world political power created this plan. There's going to be two states, one for the Arab, one for the Jew, side by side. They created this two-state solution to the answer to the whole problem. They took a vote on it. And you know what? The Jew, those Jews that have gone back, says, yes, we want this. We will do it. It's called Resolution 181. It's the partition plan for Israel and the city of Jerusalem. So the League of Nations, now the United Nations, a world government system that still has no teeth. There's going to be another world government system that's going to come in that's going to have teeth and real power. An antichrist will be in it. But this United Nations resolution, the plan was to divide Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state and organize this, hand it over peacefully to them. But guess what? The Jews wanted it. The Arabs and so-called Palestinians rejected it. The Muslims rejected it. Do you know the Muslims, the Arabs, the Palestinians have about 10 times rejected a two-state solution where they're politically living together in two different states. The Jews many times have said, yes, we're willing for that. The Arabs, the Palestinians have said, no, no, no. And now the world thinks it's the Jew that doesn't want a two-state solution. Actually, many times they were willing for it. And we know after the Arabs rejected this resolution, this two-state solution, that Britain pulled out and within 24 hours, an Arab army attacked the new, newly formed nation of Israel to destroy it and annihilate it. They didn't want to live at peace with Israel or the Jew. They wanted the entire thing for the Arabs as a Palestinian state. 
And so war broke out in the nation of Israel. It won its first war, become established. In 1967, in the, again, another war, an attack against Israel and the Jew. Israel took back the West Bank, took back Gaza, and it took back East Jerusalem, as well as the entire Sinai Peninsula between Israel and Egypt, a massive area of desert. But it gave back the Sinai Peninsula. See, Israel's always given back land that it won in war after being attacked, and it's given back in order to gain peace time and time again. In 1993, the Israeli government and the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the terrorist group PLO, agreed on a plan to implement a two-state solution as part of the Oslo Accord. You remember the PLO, they were always against making an agreement with Israel. They were there to say, we're on for the utter destruction of Israel. We will not sign a peace agreement. But Arafat was convinced of this. And so you had Clinton, President Clinton, signing an agreement how that they would implement this two-state solution through compromise, giving away ground, cities, regions, and the rest, it's history. Our entire world is on the edge of fire. In crisis, all nations have their eye tonight on Jerusalem and the little bit of land that we're talking about here. Where is this going to lead to? See, I want to lead you right into Scripture from this. Because I believe all of this is preparation. Israel has never been as hated as it is tonight. There has never been such a united opposition and antagonism to Israel, Jerusalem, and the Jew as tonight. Never in world history. It is utterly remarkable. And so I want to begin taking you, showing the stage is being set for momentous things. And Jerusalem, the Bible says, will be right at the center of everything in the last hours of world history. That's my first point, the history of a two-state solution. And I've got a lot to say on that, but I've just given you a brief snippet to understand it. Number two, God's prophetic plan for the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. You better have your seatbelt on and your helmet on for this. Stand up if you're sleepy, I warn you right now, because I want to engage your brain. Daniel chapter 9, let's go into this. I've taught on this several times, and I want to briefly give it to you here. You can go to other video messages like in our series in Daniel to get the full message going deeper on this. But I want you to hear it in the context of where we are today. Is there still a place for Jerusalem, the Jew, and the land in Bible prophecy? Has everything been fulfilled, or is it yet to happen? And does the Bible speak about Jerusalem in the day that we live and what's about to happen in the future? In Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, listen to the context. Daniel is in captivity far from Jerusalem, some thousand miles from his homeland. He was carried there as a young boy. It says in the first year of Darius, notice that, 
in Daniel chapter 9 verse 1. In the first year of Darius, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. So you see the timing of it. Exact dates are given. Exact years. And then he tells you in verse 2 what happened. He gives you a time. An exact time. Then verse 2. I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Here's Daniel at a certain time, an exact time, and he's studying the Bible. How did he understand? By books, by studying. Not a dream, not a vision, not a revelation. He was studying the Bible. He was studying Jeremiah. Have you studied Jeremiah recently? Have you read Jeremiah recently? Daniel was reading the scroll of Jeremiah. And as he did, he came to a couple of different places in a couple of different chapters about prophecies. How Jeremiah prophesied, you go into captivity 70 years. And as he studied, as he read, he realized we're coming to the end of the 70 years. It's a literal prophecy, literal 70 years. We're going to be in captivity from the days of Nebuchadnezzar, 70 years of judgment. Now it's coming to the end. Then in most of the chapter, chapter 9, he goes into prayer. He begins to pray. See, he studied the Bible, prophecies, and began to understand. I know what arid is. Do you know what arid is in this room? Through studying God's word, do you realize what are we're living in? Daniel did through studying the Bible. And he began to understand. Then he began to move to prayer, Bible study and prayer. And he begins to pray for nations and kingdoms and his people concerning his people, the Jew, Israel, and his city. He begins to pray about these things very clearly and intensely. Prayer began to ascend. Then notice what happens in verse 24. We have the angel Gabriel appear, fly swiftly to speak to Daniel. Not in a dream, not in a vision. Gabriel, who later came to Mary, comes to Daniel and appears to him and says, I've come to make you understand concerning your people. Now listen to what he says unto him. Verse 24 is such an important scripture. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Do you see that? Seventy weeks are determined. The angel Gabriel is speaking to Daniel, making him to understand a prophecy concerning times, years, events. And guess what? They're all connected to Thy people, your people, Daniel. Some of them are still in Jerusalem. Some of them are still in the land of Israel. They're a scattered small remnant, trodden down. Many of them, most of them, are here in captivity in Babylon. And here's Michael revealing 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, the Jew, 
and upon thy holy city. Where's that? That's Jerusalem. There's a period of 70 weeks which are determined, are connected to the city and the people. And this is what we're going to look at for a moment. And it says at the end of those 70 weeks, it's a certain period of time, six things will have been fulfilled. Listen to what they are. Number one, to finish the transgression. Number two, to make an end of sin. Number three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Number four, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal up the vision and prophecy. And number six, and to anoint the most holy. So Michael reveals to Daniel here, obviously bringing a message from God, 70 weeks are determined on the city of Jerusalem and your people connected specifically to them. Do you notice it's not any other city in the world? No other people. These 70 weeks, this time period is connected to them alone, only to them, only to the city of Jerusalem. You can't make this the church. You can't transcribe this to Berlin or to Dublin or to New York. You can't do that. It's connected to one city and one people. This period of time. What is this length of time that he speaks about? What is 70 weeks? This means 70 sevens. A week is seven. So it's 70 sevens. These weeks are not made up of days. This would only make it a period of one and a half years. But it's talking about years. They are prophetic years. It is 70 sevens of years. In other words, 70 times seven of years. How long is that? That's 490 years. You know what Michael is saying here? 490 years are determined upon the city of Jerusalem and the Jew, specifically connected to them in a very real way. The word determined, it's very important you understand this, the word determined, these years are determined. The word determined means to cut them off, to decree, or to allocate them. The word literally means to sever up into different portions. And in fact, the word is used of a tailor making a coat, cutting bits of material up to make one coat. It's one entire coat, but he's a tailor. And so he determines that bit's going to be an arm. That bit's going to be a sleeve. That bit's going to be a lapel. What's he doing? He's putting together a coat, but it's made of different parts. That's what the word determine means. That's for there, that's for there, that's for there, but it's one coat. The word determine means to allocate the 70 weeks of years, to separate them from time onto Jerusalem, the city, and onto the Jew alone. These 70 years are for them alone. The prophecies in these years are for them alone, not for the Gentiles. Now, let's look at this a bit closer to find out what it entails. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment, memories in captivity, do you know what's happened? Jerusalem was destroyed. Remember, Jeremiah prophesied that. Jerusalem will go into captivity. The walls are broken down. The temple is burnt down. The people are scattered. 
and there was three carrions away into captivity. Jerusalem has been burnt down by Nebuchadnezzar. And here's Daniel realizing 70 years is almost fulfilled. It's going to be the end of the 70 years. We're going back. And God uses this to speak a greater prophecy to him. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem. Do you see that? He's given a timeline. When is this 490 years going to begin? When the command is given by a world leader for God's people to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. That's when the clock starts ticking. 490 years begins as soon as a world leader gives that command. And it says from that point unto the Messiah, the prince should be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. So he's already split it. He's determined. And you know what? He misses off the last seven weeks because he's only talking about 434 years. Don't worry if you don't keep up with me in this. I just want you to understand the general thing, okay? And so he's already split it into three. First of all, a period of 49 years, then a period of 434 years, and then he's left seven years. So it's already in three. He's a tailor cutting it up, but he says it's all one period of time. And it's all connected to the city of Jerusalem. It's all connected to the Jew. Listen, he begins to explain here more about this prophecy. And believe me, it's a remarkable prophecy. And these two time parts, the first two, the 49 years and the 434 years, when they're added together, will take you up to Messiah coming the anointed one, the deliverer. Remember in the New Testament, we know Jesus was the Messiah. But listen, this is a prophecy being given to Daniel. So you have two periods of time, 49 years and 434. That makes 483 years. Only seven years are missing from this. What's the first part? 49 years. From the command is given you can trace 49 years, Jerusalem will have been rebuilt. Listen to what it says. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. In other words, in times of pressure, distress, trouble, persecution, the wall around Jerusalem is going to get built. This is proof that one period of seven is actually seven literal years. It's going to be 49 years. The command's going to be given, but rebuild Jerusalem until everything is rebuilt. The walls, the streets are finished. Did that happen? Literally. Is the seven times 70, is it seven years? Are these 70, are these seven periods of 70? We can prove on the very first part of the prophecy. You can't spiritualize it or make it a different number. Either it's literal years or it's not. And this is very important what I'm telling you. This is proof that the years are literal years. Listen, when was this fulfilled? Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1. Listen, and it came to pass in the month Nisan, 
In the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, the command is given. Do you realize we have a date for when the 490 years begin? And archaeology, if I start giving you the facts, actually recent archaeology actually provides evidence for the date of this, of when it began. The 20th year of the month Nissan, it's going to begin. Which means that at the end of this time period, it's going to lead you to a period at Nissan. What's Nissan? It's Passover. So Messiah is going to be cut off. He's going to come at Nissan. He's going to come to Jerusalem at Nissan, at Passover. Very important scripture here. The 70 weeks begin with a historic, a historic datable event of a great world leader. We know when he began to reign. Now scripture tells us in his 20th year, we have a date. And so scholars and historians, they say on the 14th of March, 445 BC, it's being confirmed in history and archaeology that King Artaxerxes, who Nehemiah used to work as a cupbearer with, Nehemiah, King Artaxerxes I of Persia issued the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem and listen, specifically the wall. The prophecy isn't just, it didn't say the temple, it said the wall. The city, rebuild the city, but it specifically mentions the wall. It's the only commandment given concerning the wall. And it was Artaxerxes in this year. We actually have an exact date. And so the clock starts ticking. Here's confirmation. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So you can count from that event. Them fulfilling it, 49 years. From the command to they finish this is 49 years. Stop the clock. Now let's start the clock again. Because once that's finished, we can now look at the second portion of this prophecy. You can trace how many years it's actually going to be from, from those years. Verse 26. You've got another period of 434 years. So from there... Messiah will come. Do you see what an extraordinary prophecy this is for Daniel to get from Michael? It's a prophecy for the year when the Messiah is going to come at Passover. And it starts giving you more information. Verse 26, and after three score and two weeks, that's 434 years or 62 weeks. Shall Messiah be cut off? The word cut off means to be killed, but not for himself. You have a prophecy. First, from Daniel's time, the, when the command's given, then to Nehemiah rebuilding the walls, then from that, you've got an exact timeline for when Messiah is going to come to Jerusalem. And these prophecies are connected to Daniel's people and the city of Jerusalem. The Messiah is going to get cut off. Guess where he's going to get cut off? In the city of Jerusalem. This is an extraordinary prophecy that is given in this Bible. And so the command is given to rebuild the wall. 
It is rebuilt. Then you can trace to Messiah. When it says he's going to get cut off, he's going to get killed, murdered. This is the word used for cutting a covenant, to get cut off. There's going to be a cutting of a covenant. In verse 26, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Messiah, the promised Messiah throughout the Old Testament is going to get cut off in Jerusalem, but not for himself. It's going to be for others. He won't die for himself. Guess what, saints? It got fulfilled exactly at Passover. We could go into this very deeply and show you. And so you have two events that will happen after 483 years. There's going to be a break. What about the last seven years? Do you realize Messiah did come? He was cut off. It wasn't for himself. It was at Jerusalem. It was exactly fulfilled. But there's seven years still not fulfilled. Some people try to cram. You know these people that deny Israel is God's people today. And they try to spiritualize all the prophecies. You know what they say? The last seven years was fulfilled between when Jesus came in about A.D. 32. Listen. Here's one date by one great scholar, scholar who studied this. He gave an exact date for when Jesus would come, the Messiah. Working out these 483 years, this is the date he came up with. The 6th of April, the year 32 AD, for the death of Messiah. How exact is that? Very, very exact. But you know what? The next seven years didn't happen immediately after Jesus died on the cross for sinners. It says certain other things are going to happen immediately at that point in time. It says in verse 26, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city. Notice this, before it talks about the last seven years. So we had 49 years. Then we've got 434 years. Have they been fulfilled literally, exactly as years, as times? Of course they have. But what about the last seven years? Where do they get fulfilled in relation to Jerusalem? Well, it says certain things after Messiah gets cut off. That isn't the end. There's a space or a time period before the last seven years. Look at verse 26. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So it's a prophecy after Messiah gets cut off. There's a space between the end. The clock has stopped at Messiah getting cut off. And what happens then? is the city is going to get destroyed, the sanctuary, the temple. That didn't happen for almost 40 years until the year AD 70. That means there's a gap. The seven years didn't happen directly after Messiah getting cut off. It did not happen. There is a break because the city still has to be destroyed. And that's at least going to be 35 years, almost 40 years before the city is destroyed. So there's a gap now. 
and the seven years are left hanging. When are they going to get fulfilled? They didn't get fulfilled at Messiah because between this happening, the city has to be destroyed. The people have to be scattered. Notice what it says again, verse 26. And the people of the prince that shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary, that is the temple. So look at it. It's told now about a prince who's going to fulfill the last seven years. And you can find out the nationality of the prince or the political system by knowing what people destroyed Jerusalem. If you knew the people who destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, then you can begin to understand what's going to happen with the last seven years. Because that people, a prince is going to rise up in that political system who's going to begin to fulfill the last seven years in connection with Jerusalem. This is very important because it hasn't happened yet. Never in world history. So there's seven years concerning Jerusalem. So all those who say, we don't believe Jerusalem is anything to God and national Israel and the land of Israel, you're going to have a problem because there's a lot of prophecies yet to be fulfilled, all concerning the people and the city. And this is one of the most major. After all, wasn't this prophecy right about Nehemiah rebuilding the walls? Wasn't in, in a very troublesome time? They had to have a, 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 a sword in one hand and the build a material in the other hand, the trial in the other hand. They built and they fought, building it in troublesome times. It's true. Was Messiah cut off at that actual date? Yes. What about the last seven years? It's concerning Jerusalem. All these people that say all Bible prophecy was fulfilled in the first century. Revelation was fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem. What a load of rubbish. An amillennialist who spiritualizes all these prophecies. So they say God's finished with Jerusalem and with Israel and they're cut off. And all the prophecies, we spiritualize them for the church now. What a disaster. All of this is about to happen in our day. Can you imagine, like Israel in the first century, they've got a prophecy in Daniel telling you the very year that Messiah will come up at Passover to Jerusalem and he'll be cut off. And the Jewish leaders and scholars, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious experts, they said, crucify him. They had a prophecy that could have showed them, but they were blind. They were rebels. They had the word of God. They couldn't understand prophecy. Because you know what? It takes a right heart in God to open that up in a very, very real way. And so you have here, there's going to be a time delay. The city has got to be destroyed. And in fact, it says more than that. Who is this prince? The prince is an anointed one. The prince in verse 27 is connected to the last week that we're just about to read about. The last period of seven literal years. There's a prophecy about the last seven years, just like all those other years. An exact prophecy to tell you when Jerusalem's wall is going to be rebuilt. And a prophecy to tell you when Messiah is going to get cut off in Jerusalem. There's another prophecy of seven years yet to be fulfilled. If you find out who this people are, then you will find out who the prince is or where he will arise. 
We're not going to go into all of that tonight. The people who cut off Christ and destroyed the temple have a connection with all of this. You remember in AD 70, it was Titus who went in and destroyed the temple and the city of Jerusalem. But it says something else, verse 26, and the end thereof shall be with a flood unto the end of the war. Desolations are determined. This is all before the last seven years. So again, this word determined, here's something that is set for the city of Jerusalem. Not only is it going to get destroyed in AD 70, Jerusalem will be left desolate. But now here is determined on the city of Jerusalem a whole unspecified period of times that's going to keep continuing a flood. What does it say? Of desolation is determined. A flood. This is talking about wars. Do you know over the years, Jerusalem has been besieged 23 times, attacked 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times, and destroyed completely at least twice. That's what's happened. Do you realize this whole period of 2,000 plus years, that has been that space between Messiah being cut off. The seven years have not started. The clock has not started yet again. Last seven years concerning Jerusalem. And certain things have to be in place before the clock starts again. In other words, the whole world has to be in the right place. The nations, the people, the city, everything has to be in its place before the clock can start for the last seven years. This is a remarkable thing that we're reading here. Let's look at these final seven years. And so we have the conclusion in verse 27. He, the prince of that people, it's prophesying about a period of seven years, one week at the end of time. A prince whose people destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70 will arise again in connection with Jerusalem. He's going to be a Roman. It was the Roman Empire. I don't have time to go into all of this. This man is also called the Little Horn in Daniel and in the book of Revelation. We read about ten horns or a political system arising at the end of time. The League of Nations, the United Nations. Then you're going to have a world government paralyzed with ten leaders, ten horns, ten men, ten politicians, ten kings who are going to rule. And a little horn's going to come up in that political system. And he's going to initiate the very last seven years in a remarkable way. Do you remember the prophecy? And you'll have heard the wrong interpretation of it concerning Antichrist. It says he'll receive a wound even unto death. And so all the Bible teachers say the Antichrist is going to get assassinated and then resurrected. A load of baloney, it's rubbish. Do you know what the beast is? The seven heads of the beast, 
represent forms of government from the city of Rome. And the last head gets killed was imperial Roman leadership. And you know that's history. In other words, the head gets killed. Smitten. But there's going to arise another head. You know what it's going to look like? Ten world leaders. And then there's another one, an eighth. And that's going to be the little horn, this prince. Just giving you an overview, but listen carefully. And he, the prince, this is how you know the seven years begins. How do we know what is the sign? When does the clock start again in connection with Jerusalem? Watch carefully. And he, the prince, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, something's going to happen. So you get another determinant. This is the third and final part, a period of seven years, and it gets split in two again, three and a half and three and a half, the middle of the week. We're told this prince, this little horn, this political leader that's going to arise in the last world government, in connection with Jerusalem, look what it says, he shall confirm the covenant. Remember the entire 70 times 7 is connected to a certain people, the Jew. This has never been fulfilled. No one can tell me God's finished with the Jew. This isn't talking about spiritual Israel, the church. It's to a specific people and a specific city. The last seven years has to do with Jerusalem and the Jew. And they are going to exist in the last days. As surely as they did when Messiah was cut off. And so when this prince arises, he's going to confirm, or the word is establish, not invent, not create. He's going to simply establish this covenant. This political leader who's going to rise up out of the last world government is going to sign or establish or confirm a covenant, a document, a peace agreement with Israel and with the Jew concerning Jerusalem He's going to sign a covenant, enter into a political binding contract with a people and a city for one week, seven years. That's what's going to identify him. But listen to what it says. In the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. What is the sacrifice? Do you know what that means? And we can go to other scriptures. In the seven years, the Jews in Jerusalem begin to make sacrifices again in Jerusalem. That means there has to be a temple erected again in Jerusalem, a third temple. The last one was destroyed in AD 70. That was Herod's temple. But here you have this prince, when he comes and he signs a covenant, a part of that covenant, he breaks the covenant halfway through and he stops the blood sacrifices. That means he makes a covenant with Israel where he reestablishes their priesthood, their temple and their ancient blood sacrifice again in this covenant. And the seven years begin to tick and it says in the ablation to cease. 
and for the overspreading of abomination, he shall make it desolate even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. This prince is a junior leader, a politician, a military man, a diplomat, a small king of a small nation within one of the 10 regions the world is very shortly going to be split into. He shall confirm it with many, many Jews. Remember, I'm expecting a revival very shortly in Jerusalem, aren't I? I'm expecting Ezekiel's war. But this is torn a bit further down the road. And it talks about this man that we know as Antichrist signing this covenant with many. Who are these many? They're unbelieving Jews. Orthodox Jews who want a temple, who want blood sacrifice, who believe in Judaism. They're not believers in Christ. They're not converted Jews. These are orthodox, radical Jews that are against Jesus Christ. You know what? They are going to enter into this covenant politically, religiously. This political leader is actually going to give them what they want because he doesn't want them to have Christ. He doesn't. He revives ancient Judaism. He says, I'll give you your temple. I'll give you peace. I'll give you everything you want. We're going to sign this. You can have it all. You know why? Because a revival has swept the city of Jerusalem. And this little prince, he hates that spiritual work of God in that city. And so he is against it. He signs this covenant for one week. These seven years are also divided in the midst of the week. What happens? He shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. The establishment of the temple has to be in place. The sacrifice is blood. The oblation is non-blood sacrifices. And they carry on for three and a half years. Do you realize the Antichrist is going to sign a covenant with religious Israel? And for three and a half years, he's going to allow them to have their temple and blood sacrifice. There's going to be a revival of religious Judaism that does not believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. This has never happened in all of history. Never, not once. But it is going to happen. You know what Jesus says, prophesying about the last days. In Matthew 24 and 3, his disciples say to him, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Listen to the specific sign he gives. Matthew 24, 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. The holy place. That means there has to be a temple and a holy place. And Jesus says, when you see Daniel's prophecy fulfilled, that's the middle of the week, halfway through the seven years. It's all in connection with Jerusalem. And Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, stand in the holy place, in the temple, in Jerusalem, then this is what he says, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which are in Judea flee into the mountains. You can't spiritualize this to the church. 
This is speaking about a literal prophecy that's going to be fulfilled in the last days. And then shall be great tribulation. Do you know there's the sign of the beginning of the great tribulation? Do you know where the great tribulation begins? In Jerusalem. Do you know what is the sign that the tribulation is beginning? Immediately is the abomination of desolation set up in the temple of Jerusalem. The Antichrist gives the Jew his temple, builds them a temple, allows them to have blood sacrifices. And then do you know what he does? He sets up an image of himself. Listen to what it says in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And the son, I'm sorry, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. That's the prince. That's the little horn. That day isn't going to come until the son of perdition is revealed. And a great falling away of the church happens. And listen what he says about this son of perdition who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself as God. Do you know why he breaks the covenant and stops the blood sacrifices? He sets up an abomination in the house of God. Not the spiritual house of God, the church, but this physical building. Jesus is the holy place. He didn't call it something else. He called it a holy place. He's prophesying of the future. The abomination of desolation will be put in the holy place. Let me finish with my third point. I'll, I'll finish where I was going to start, but I'm finishing. Now you'll begin to understand things. My third and final point, Jerusalem's final week. So I believe we're in that time. We're getting prepared. I see all the bits getting put in place. Everything ready. And then the clock's going to start again. Tick, 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 tick. We're getting very close. And nothing's going to stop that. This third and final point, revelation Chapter 11, verse 1. Listen. And there was given me, that is John, a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure. This reed was a measuring reed. It was a long plank of wood used for measuring things. And it's in his hand. And the angel says unto John, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So it's a specific time he is talking about. There's a temple, there's an altar, and there's worshipers. It's concerning Jerusalem, and he's to measure it. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out. Don't measure it. Measure it not, for it is given to the Gentiles. Here's the partition of the city of Jerusalem. In the last days, 
It's all part of this political plan that we're seeing now. America's talking about it. Russia's talking about it. China's talking about it. Britain's talking about it. Ireland's talking about it. The EU is. The UN. They're all talking about this. How are we going to partition the land? And here you have this last political leader. He's in that system that was the League of Nations and was the United Nations. And it's going to be called the New World Order. It's the same system. And the League of Nations was called the New World Order. And the UN has been called the New World Order. Don't tell me it's coming. It's, it's functioning. It's the manifest. You know what? The head of the beast is going to get healed very shortly. And it's going to happen in the city of Rome. In the city of Rome. And they're going to create a new form of world government where the entire world is split into 10 regions and they have 10 world controllers. It's going to happen. And these men know it's going to happen. And they've known for decades it's going to happen. And they've written about it. Secular men, atheists, they know it. The church doesn't know it. So here's John being told, measure it. There's going to be a partition of Jerusalem. This is why I walked in on that news item and there's Hebron being partitioned and my jaw drops to the ground. It's this scripture we've been dealing with. And it's going to be given to the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot for 42 months. Three and a half years, half of the week. So here's a prophecy in Revelation saying there's a temple, there's worship, there's an altar for blood. And he's to measure it. And now suddenly you see the Gentiles have half of the city. Do you know in the 1947 UN resolution, they said Jerusalem's going to be an international city. Ever since then, they want Jerusalem. It's the only city in the world they want as the international city belonging to all peoples. It's the only city. And now here in Revelation, when we see everything coming down to the final seven years, Jerusalem is at the heart of this. Do you know when this great tribulation begins, this prince who signed the covenant, it says he's going to bring up all nations against Jerusalem. There's going to be a besiegement, not against Israel, but against Jerusalem, a city. All nations and their armies are going to surround Jerusalem, one little city. One tiny speck on the map. Saints of God, what I'm telling you, you're watching on your televisions, a hatred grew out of a horrendous attack by Hamas on Jews, on Israel. And in the past two to three months, we've seen anti-Semitism go through the roof. Who could have imagined it? From day one, it didn't stop, start now when they start talking about annihilation and all the bombing. This is from day one. Do you see this has to happen? Because Jerusalem and Israel, it's going to be a burdensome stone for all nations of the world. And very shortly, all nations are going to come up against the small city of Jerusalem. And guess what? They can't break it for three and a half years. Three and a half years. 
They're held back. Why is that? The answer's in Revelation chapter 11. I'm not going there. I'm not going to read it. But this is an extraordinary thing that you have a temple, you have an outer court, you have an inner court, you have this angel telling John to measure it all. And in verse 8 of this chapter, listen to what it says. It talks about the two witnesses, two prophets, who God sends, who are going to be there, who hold back everything. That's why they don't get it for three and a half years. But eventually they kill them. And it says their bodies lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. In Revelation 11, it's talking about a literal city where Jesus was crucified. Jerusalem, not spiritual Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't crucified spiritually in spiritual Israel or spiritual Jerusalem. This is talking about a physical city, national Jerusalem. And these two witnesses are going to lie there on the streets. Do you know what it says? It says that all the nations of the world are going to see them lying there. For three and a half days, their bodies are going to lie there. And all the nations of the world are going to give presents one to the other. This has gone on for three. Can you imagine for three and a half years, every single night on your news screen, you're watching Jerusalem and they can't take the city. Half of the city they cannot take because the two prophets calling fire down are speaking fire and destroying the enemy. Every night you're watching this on your iPhone or who knows what will have or you're just digitally, it'll come up in your brain by then. This is how clued in you'll be. Can you imagine all this technology? And you know my great-grandmother reading this exact prophecy turned to my young little mother, her granddaughter, and said, Dear, I believe this Bible and this is going to happen, but how can I sit here in this house in Dromore County down and see literally things happening in the streets of Jerusalem as they're happening. How could that ever be possible? It's possible today. And do you realize that in 1991, in the Gulf War, up Granby, or Desert Storm, as the Americans called it, was the first world, it was the first war ever in all of history that had live viewing back to people in other countries. And I was there. I was there in Iraq in 91. And they were broadcasting live back home. Do you know that was the biggest gathering, the largest army in modern history? It was like a dress rehearsal for the end. I was 18 years old, and as I sat there in the deserts of Saudi Arabia and of Iraq and of Kuwait, reading my Bible, and I thought, what a day that's going to be when all the armies gather and they'll watch everything live. I went, this is the beginning of technology. Do you see how these prophecies, it's all coming. We're getting very, very close to this now. Let me close here very Briefly, the Temple Institute was created in 1987 by Jews, Bible-believing Jews, to hold 
to build the third temple on the Temple Mount or the Dome of the Rock, which is the third holiest place for Muslims. There's going to be trouble. This same group have gone about bringing back the red heifer. There was no red heifers, and it had to be a red heifer. It's a 14, or sorry, a 400-pound beast. There's to be a temple, but it's extinct. It's an extinct animal. But they have ge- ge- genetically recreated this, brought it back, and they're raising them now for the first time since AD 70. That's remarkable. This same institute has a school to train young men for the priesthood. And now with our DNA technology, they're saying, you are very likely of the tribe of Levi. And they're very scrutinizing. They're using technology to again prepare and to train a new priesthood. They're preparing the priestly garments. They have made the silver trumpets. They've made the lyres or the harps to play. Do you know that it was in the year 2004, they again reconstituted the Jewish Sanhedrin. They had tried to do this for 500 years, but they only done it in 2004. They need a Sanhedrin of 70 elders again in the nation in order for all of this to happen. All of this is just forming right now. In 2015, they rebuilt the brazen altar and completed it 7.7 feet by 24.5 feet wide. They've got the brazen altar all ready to go for the temple. August 2016, they chose their first high priest to function for the priesthood again. Don't tell me they're not going to do this. They take They said that it'll take them just a period of one week to have all of this functioning as it ought to. They're training, they're practicing, they're preparing. They've even practiced on a temporary structure, putting it up overnight just to get ready. And in 2017, they restated the temple tax or half shekel that you need to use in in it. Israel now has about 25% Orthodox Jews. They're preparing to have this third temple, blood sacrifice, and have Jerusalem as their capital again, functioning in religious worship. I want to tell you, we are very, very close. And what you have right now, what we're seeing experience, the two-state solution, they're looking for peace. A man of peace called the prince, the antichrist as we know him, The son of perdition is going to come as that man of peace. And in a covenant of peace, he's going to say, here's your peace. Here's your temple. Here's your priesthood. And they're getting ready, but they won't realize that who they call this prince, this anointed one, is going to be the devil's son, ready to deceive, to persecute them, to destroy them, and to scatter them. Saints of God, we're dealing with very real things. When you look at Jerusalem, we're dealing with Bible prophecy. The clock is just about to start ticking again. We're in the last of the last days. And all Bible prophecy is coming to fulfillment. There are many prophecies 
which are being set into place now. And we're only a breath away from the finality of all things. And I'm going to tell you, Jerusalem is right at the heart of it. It's the key focus of Bible prophecy. And when Jesus Christ comes again as the Prince of Peace, he'll come to the Mount of Olives, set his feet upon it. It's going to split. And he'll walk in the gates of that ancient city once again to bring in his everlasting kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you, O oh God. Although we, it, our world's in a crisis, O oh God, we realize that we haven't seen anything yet. This world of ours with its political systems and religion is heading for chaos, disaster, deception. But my God, one last time, we want to preach the gospel. We want a revival. We want to see a revival amongst the Jews in Israel, amongst the Muslims, the Arabs. Lord God, we're looking at your church again experiences a Pentecostal revival, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a revival that's going to see many turn on to righteousness. We realize there's a day of the outpouring of your wrath and your judgment coming and my God while it's yet day we want to labor while we may tell men of their sins and of their need of Christ nor God before this hour of darkness descends nor God prepare us make us ready oh God woe unto us if we while a religious system is preparing and making ready for their religious capital and their temple that we the church of God are not preparing ourselves for one last time to be the bride of Christ to see the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ my God I do pray that you revive us again you stir us and Lord God as we see what's happening in Jerusalem as we see you preparing to start the clock again Lord God that an urgency would grip us that our time is short that the days are being cut short by the hand the sovereign hand of our God nor God the days are few in which we're going to serve you and Father I do pray make us fruitful in the house of God make this church effective to do the will of God and then let it let us Lord God close the chapter out by hearing the words well done thou good and thou faithful servant in Jesus mighty name thank you Lord Jesus